Well, good morning, everyone. It is lovely to see you this beautiful Thursday morning. I hope that the snow is melting wherever you guys are at. I know it's going ever so slowly here, and we're itching closer and closer to, to springtime ever so slowly. It feels like it's going to be a long time, but before we know it, uh, some, spring is coming. Summer's coming, too. But we're not here to talk about seasons. We're here to talk about Jesus, about the Bible, and learning and growing uh, in, in discipleship as we're following Jesus. And so, as we're following through this uh, uh, Redeeming Life reading plan, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 26 and focusing on verses 17 through 46. And this is certainly one of the longer chapters in the whole book of Matthew, which is why we've tried to divide it up into three different sections, three chunks. And it's amazing how, as the story has been leading up to the Passion Week, one week of Jesus' life, just how much action, how much dialogue, how many uh, parables, uh, how much conflict that you could just pack into one week's worth of time. There is a lot that's going on here in here, and it seems as though the, 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 the pace of the narrative actually slows down, so you're focusing in on lots of details that are very easy for us to overlook if we're just hopping like bunnies through the gospel, just jumping from place to place to place to place, and and not actually pausing long enough to focus on the things that the gospel writers are pointing out to us. And I think that's going to be actually really important for where we are today, which, according to the reading plan, you're really going to to, to dive into... Uh, three connected episodes. One, the first one being the Last Supper. The second or second one being uh, Peter's denial, or excuse me, not Peter's denial, Jesus' prediction of Peter's denial, which he knows is going to happen. And then lastly, where we're going to focus our attention today uh, is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, which should, if I'm not mistaken, yes, be verses 36 through 46. And I wanted to focus primarily on this passage because, well, one, the good thing about going through all the different Gospels is that because so much of their material overlaps, if we miss something through one in one Gospel account, uh, we'll have two or three more tries to, to cover up, uh, you know, lost ground when we're uh, going through Matthew, going through, or going through Mark, going through Luke, going through John, uh, and even doing reflections back on these things as we go through Acts and uh, the epistles and uh, and et cetera, et cetera. So, so why I really did want to to focus on here, which is something of a unique focus for Matthew that he doesn't focus on very much uh, throughout the rest of his account, is basically um, Jesus and his emotions. And I want to try and frame what we're about to read with uh, this question. Uh, have you experienced or probably experienced or, or, uh, or known somebody who has experienced or deals with PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, where, uh, now I'm not a doctor, I'm not a psychiatrist, but essentially PTSD refers to the traumatic effects mentally on a person that are lasting because of uh, a very 
significant, a very uh, a threatening episode in their lives to the point where they, they may have lived through it, but the, the weight of the emotional trauma has become permanent in their minds and they're, they've just been affected to, the, to their very wiring of their brain that they don't function the same way that, as they had done before because of the, the trauma that they endured was so severe. I've known uh, a lot of people who have uh, gone on to certainly have, you know, functional, fruitful lives, but at the end of the day, the, the effects, whether you notice them or not, are lasting because the trauma that they endured was so great. And what I, what I find interesting about with PTSD or talking to people with PTSD is that usually you can better grasp the significance or the severity of the trauma that this person has experienced based on how it is that it has affected them emotionally. In now some cases, if somebody is already not very emotionally strong, even the the slightest provocation can be uh, scarring. Uh, we've all known some, you know, toddlers or teenage girls who are like that, and probably some teenage boys too, if I'm not being, uh, you know, uh, uh, honest. You know, there can be just the overly dramatic sorts. But when you see somebody who experiences, who who is... You, you can see that they're recoiling under the weight of emotional trauma. You can understand the weight of that emotional trauma, especially when it happens to somebody who you've known and regarded as somebody who is uh, mentally and emotionally uh, robust, that, that, that they, they've developed a very strong, not resistance to emotional trauma, but they have the sort of emotional strength to endure it. And I would argue, certainly, that Jesus has been one of those characters where, as we've read about him and uh, heard his words and seen his actions, that he is, of all people, somebody who is just always in control. He controls the wind and the waves, for goodness sake. And he's the sort of person where, if you think about a person of character, in other words, a person who is consistent in their actions and who always has this um, steering control over their, their bodies, their thoughts, their imaginations, their emotions, everything is square and in check, where... He just doesn't budge. He can't be pushed around. He's never the person who um, goes too far. He's he's temperate. He's prudent. He's uh, he's just uh, always in control. He never loses himself. And when you see somebody like Jesus, who is described in the way that he's talking about the 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 the, the gospel writers talk about the agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. That should give us pause to say, here's Jesus, here's the emotions that are felt by this man, this, this God-man, the Son of Man, the Messiah. If this is what it is that he's experiencing, what's the weight of agony 
the turmoil that he's about to endure that would cause this type of mental anguish in a person like Jesus. That's what we want to try and think about. Because what that's going to do, there's a lot of lessons to learn in, a, in a, an account like the Garden of Gethsemane. But if there is anything that I think is especially instructive for us, is to see if this is what Jesus is experiencing in Gethsemane, what does that tell us about the reality? What's going on uh, beneath the surface between what it is that Jesus is about to experience? Is it agony because he's about to be betrayed by his friends? Is it frustration because his disciples, who he's brought along and asked to keep watch, who they just said were prepared to lay down their lives for them, can't actually keep awake to watch his back? Uh, is it that type of disappointment? Is it the shame and uh, ignominy of, of being put on an unjust trial and being condemned to die and, uh, and being betrayed by his own people? Is it uh, the physical pain of being scourged, of being, uh, of being hung on a cross, to having your body impaled and hanging naked uh, before all these uh, the, the public as a public disgrace, to be used as an example about what happens if you cross the Roman Empire, that this is what we do to foreigners, this is what we do to slaves, that if you cross us, we're going to crucify you. To be uh, humiliated as a piece of Roman propaganda. Is that what Jesus is, is agonized about? Because in this stage right now, the period in Gethsemane is like being in the waiting room. Where you know what's going to happen. It's going to come. This is the last moment before you cross that threshold and you... Uh, submit yourself to the treatment of whoever's going to deal with you. Uh, is it the, the, the suffering and agony of just being betrayed? Is it all of any of those things? Now, as bad as all of those things are, I do not believe that any of them is so great that they would make Jesus in, feel the sort of things that he's feeling right now. And Let's jump in to the text and get a feel for what Jesus is feeling. Uh, Matthew chapter 26, beginning in thir verse 36. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him. That's the intimate three. And he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, listen to this, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. In other words, you might say, what Jesus is saying is that I am so sorrowful. The weight of the darkness that surrounds me is so bad that, that I'm prepared to just die. I'm so, um, I'm just overwhelmed with sorrow. He's feeling what the psalmist is feeling, uh, where uh, his soul is not merely downcast, but just shrouded in darkness. 
because of what it is that he's about to, to endure. Verse 39, going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. He's praying, certainly a lot of echoes here with the, the disciples' prayer, the Lord's prayer, where Jesus is calling out to God as my Father, as our Father. But isn't it interesting? He says, may this cup be taken from me. Where it's quite clear, this stage, that what that there's there's no he's he's in a, a, a Gethsemane, which is uh, another word you might use to describe like an oil press, so that he's probably like in some kind of olive oil orchard or whatever, um, and that there's no there's no physical cups around. He doesn't have his Nalgene water bottle there to take drinks whenever he's thirsty. He's not talking about a physical cup like like this one. Uh, but rather a metaphorical cup, uh, a symbol symbolic cup. What cup is it that he's referring to? And what I find interesting is that when Jesus is talking about the cup, and he's taking it and using it in a symbolic fashion, what's clear to me is that the cup that he is he is about to drink, that is being handed to him, is the cup of, of God's suffering and wrath that he pours out on sin. In other words, there's a world that's full of sin and evil and suffering that, that in the Old Testament, in the Psalms, in Isaiah, in Jeremiah, uh, they use this term of the, the wine of God's wrath being poured out. Even Revelation uses this. Uh, full strength, or uh, that... that disorients uh, the wicked and makes them uh, stagger like drunkards, uh, where because of their sin, the, 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 the cup of God's wrath is being poured out. And in this language, and the way it is that Jesus is feeling this, is that what it is that, that Jesus is about to drink is the cup of God's wrath. That... God in his justice is has to pour out on sin and sinners. And so it should give us pause. What does a perfect, sinless man like Jesus, who knew no sin, nor was there any deceit in his mouth, um, doing to receive the cup of God's wrath? Why is he drinking that? And why is it be that he has to do this? What this certainly tells me is that if what it is that Jesus is so deeply troubled by is the cup of God's wrath and the cup of God's wrath that belongs to sinners, that the suffering that Jesus is about to endure is the suffering that you and I deserve. That what Jesus is about to go through is in the most literal sense is going to hurt like hell. We use that all too flippantly. What Jesus is about to experience is going to hurt like hell. Because this type of suffering, of enduring, taking 
the affliction of the wine of, of God's wrath and enduring it. Um, and that type of suffering is a living hell. And that's what Jesus endured on the cross. And that's what's happening behind the scenes, what's happening below the surface, and that should inform us about what it is that, that Jesus is, is enduring at this stage of his deepest, darkest hour. Uh, but let's, uh, let's continue. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Could you men not keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body or the flesh is weak. That little aphorism, that little saying that, that, that he's closing with this, is something that is, it's, it's clear that the disciples are a bad example, or that they, uh, they're, they're being a bad example of, of what not to do, but what is typical in our experience, that when God calls us to do something, it's easy to uh, let our actions follow through when we're feel in, when our enthusiasm carries us and we want to do the sort of things that God is calling us to do. That is um, where you you have uh, an inward enthusiasm to want to do something, but the flesh, the body, the will to be able to actually carry it out is weak, and that. In order for us to be disciples who, who do not falter in the way that the disciples faltered, is to be people who have indeed a, a, a willing spirit and a, a willing flesh, uh, where in the same way as Jesus is about to submit the unwillingness of his flesh to the will of the Father so that he can follow through in this, uh, that we too are supposed to um, to submit our stubborn and rebellious flesh to the will of the Father. And what we mean by flesh is not just about carnal appetites, the things that we want to eat and to drink and watch, even though sometimes those things are involved, uh, but rather to say, uh, Lord, my my will and my ambition is something that I'm offering up to you, where it's, as Jesus is saying, not my will, but let yours be done. Uh, Jesus is succeeding where the disciples are faltering. But let's continue. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away, unless I drink it, may your will be done. So again, Jesus is walking in, in submission to the Father, where even though he feels one way and his soul is overwhelmed with sorrow, he's acting in the way that God has called him to act, which is another valuable lesson for us to know that when it comes to, to walking in discipleship, walking in obedience, the Christian life is not simply one where you're just always going on by your emotions. You're going to feel one thing, but um, the importance is the, not the thing that we feel like doing, but the thing that we know that we ought to do. Uh, 
It's not to, to discredit our emotions, just to regard them as not there, but as Jesus submitted even his emotions to God, um, we, we can and ought to do the same. Um, not just forsaking our emotions just for the sake of forsaking our emotions, but rather to say, um, God, here's my emotions, here's what they are, and I can't change my emotions but I can change, I, ha I still have a decision about what to do. And I want to, my, my actions to be in accordance with your will and to follow through with what it is that you've called me to do. So let's finish here. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed a third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour is near, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. At this moment, from, from between here and tomorrow, is when, in the words of another gospel writer, that um, this is the hour when darkness reigns, uh, and it's going to get ugly. So, but I want us to remember or to, to, to realize that as we're reading and thinking through what it is that Jesus is about to endure, that um, I don't think any of us could endure the sort of things that Jesus could endure. But he did endure it, not simply because he was God, but because out of his love for us, that this is the sort of thing that he would endure. It reminds me of the, the, the poem that, uh, that goes, No one can tell, but who could know the pains that he had to bear? But we believe it was for us he hung and suffered there. So let's remember that what it is that Jesus is about to endure, uh, not merely crucifixion, not merely betrayal, not merely shame, exposure, even, you know, suffering, torture, and death itself. But, um, but what it is that he endured, and indeed endured to the heart of his hearts, um, is the penalty and the suffering that, that comes from, from our sin, and that's the suffering that we deserved. Uh, and that's what Jesus did. And so uh, let that go to heart as we, as we follow along Matthew and see what it is that he shows us about who Jesus is and what it is that he's done uh, so that we can live as a new and a changed people. Uh, so thank you so much for taking the time to enjoy daily devotions with us. Uh, do subscribe if you haven't already. And I look forward to the next time we get to see each other uh, in person, uh, Wednesdays and Sundays over at Pastor Jesse's house. He is an amazing guy. Uh, if you don't get the chance, uh, give him a great big hug because uh, pastors need hugs too, or at least I do. Uh, so God bless you. Take care and I will see you next time.